Hey, if you listen to this podcast week after week, then you will absolutely love my books. There's Travel Light, which basically gives you all of the steps for following your heart. And then there's Knowing Where to Look, which is full of inspirational stories and anecdotes that will help you shift your perspective in the most inspiring way. And for those of you who can't seem to crack the meditation code, grab a copy of Bliss More, How to Succeed in Meditation Without Really Trying, and your meditation practice will never be the same. All of those books are available on Amazon, as well as everywhere else books are sold. That's Travel Light, Knowing Where to Look, and Bliss More. All right, back to the show. I felt bad about, you know, like turning 40 and just thinking about where am I going to be in 20 years? Like, do I have retirement? Like, who's going to take care of my sisters? You know, they both have disabilities. Neither of them are married. And, you know, I just started to feel like, what is my long term plan? Like at 40, that was the first time I was like, what am I doing? Like, what's my community? What's my support system? How am I going to take care of my family and survive this so that I can live a long life and, and be happy and comfortable and healthy and all that stuff? Welcome back to At the End of the Tunnel. It's Light Watkins, and I've got a very special guest this week. I'm talking to author and comedian Sarah Cooper, whose viral TikTok Trump impersonations led to a Netflix show called Everything's Fine, which is a comedic commentary on the state of America during the Trump years. So I've known Sarah since 2012 when she attended one of my meditation trainings in New York City. At the time, I knew that she was working in corporate America and that she really wanted to do stand-up comedy. And two years after we met, she wrote a humorous piece on Medium called 10 Tips for Appearing Smart in Meetings, which ended up going viral and then later became a book. She did eventually take a leap of faith into becoming a full-time comedian and writer And when Trump was elected president, she began openly voicing her opinion about him on Twitter, so much so that he blocked her in 2017. However, her career wasn't taking off as fast as she had hoped. And then cut to the beginning of 2020, she's performing stand-up for a crowd of three people at a pizza parlor in New York and thinking, I'm in my 40s. If things don't pick up soon, I'm going to go back to corporate America. One day, she decides to do a Trump impersonation and post it on TikTok. And then the next thing she knows, it gets a million views. So she did more and each one went viral. And then Sarah became a TikTok star. She was profiled in the New York Times and a bunch of other major media outlets. And after Trump would do a news briefing, the media awaited Sarah's TikTok impersonation. And eventually the floodgates opened and she got a ton of opportunities She got her Netflix show, an agent, and having known Sarah for years, but not really knowing her backstory, it was fun to go back and connect the dots from her upbringing to see how where she started led to where she is now and how my younger brother actually played a key role in her start as a comedian. Speaking of which, we do speak very openly about some pretty adult topics, so this is probably not the conversation for very young children. We definitely keep it real, though. But if you are at a crossroads in your life between sticking with the conventional path and taking a leap of faith in the direction of your purpose or your passion, I think you're going to get a lot of inspiration from hearing Sarah's story in her own words. So without further ado, I'm honored to introduce you to my dear friend, comedian and author, Sarah Cooper. Sarah Cooper, 
thanks so much for coming on to the podcast. It's been a while. <laughs> I like to start these conversations off talking about childhood. You weren't born in America. Oh. You were born in Jamaica. Yes, I was <laughs> born in Jamaica. <laughs> you said it like you were giving me some information, <laughs> like you were a doctor. You were not born here. <laughs> you are. are you an American citizen? I am an American citizen. Is that a requirement for being on your podcast? <laughs> Did you have to become one later? My parents, who are very conscientious, became citizens after we moved here. And because I was young enough, I was naturalized. Because I know Jamaicans have a very strong cultural affinity and, and loyalty. And I wasn't sure if you wanted to maintain your, your Jamaican You know, I, I don't thing. know why, but when I moved here, I just, I moved here when I was three and I just... I was like, oh, no, I'm not going to have an accent. I'm going to speak perfectly, and I'm going to speak like an American. And I was correcting my parents the way that they were speaking. I, as soon as I could talk, I was like, you're not saying that right. <laughs> so for whatever reason, I just I always wanted to fit in. And then, and then when you tell people you're Jamaican, they're like, oh, can you do the accent? No, because I beat it out of myself. Like, I refuse to do it, and now I wish I could do it. So That's funny. I've heard you try to speak Patois, and you sound terrible. You sound like me trying to imitate a Jamaican. Okay. So this is how it's going to be. This is how the podcast is going to go. You're just going to put down my accent work. Okay. I get it. But you obviously understand everything, right? I pretty much do. I have gone back to Jamaica and been swindled before because I didn't understand what was going on. So no, I don't. If, if, if you have a very, very thick Jamaican accent, it's very hard to understand for me. There's an interesting story about how you all landed in Washington, D.C. Yeah. My grandmother moved here when she was 40 and she left a husband who just wasn't working out and she just came here on her own. I mean, this is back in the seventies when, you know, there was no like internet or anything. So she was just applying for jobs like through the mail. And she finally found a job as a housekeeper for this lady in DC. And she wrote a letter and the woman offered her the job. And that's how my grandmother came here. And she came here by herself. And then she brought my dad and she brought my uncle. She brought cousins. I mean, she's really the reason that we're here. And she is Chinese. She was Chinese Jamaican woman, Evelyn Beckford. She died four years ago at 99 and a half. Which part of DC did you settle in? Rockville, Maryland. (laughs) I always say DC, but I mean, Maryland. Um, It's it's kind of DC-ish. Yeah. It's 40 minutes outside of DC. It's a DC suburb. So yeah, Yeah. we were in the suburbs. Talk a little bit about your dynamic, your family dynamic. You have a couple of sisters, your parents, was your grandmother, did you guys all live in the same area? What was it like in the household? Our first home, you know, we rented. My dad, again, like found a job, saw an article in the paper about a problem they were having with the subway system in, in DC and he knew how to fix it. So he sent a letter to someone at the DC metropolitan area transit authority and got a job that way. And so he was doing that. My mom was like a secretary. It was four of four kids. So it was six of us total. And I had an older brother, two older sisters, and then it was me. And my sister that's closest to me in age, Rachel, she's like a year and a half older than me. We were just, we dressed alike. Everybody thought we were twins. And then my older, older sister, she was born with something called Treacher-Collins syndrome. So she was born without ears. She couldn't hear. She had a lot of surgeries growing up. She was in and out of Johns Hopkins, actually. So we were going back and forth to Baltimore. And then my brother just was 
being a teenager <laughs> in, in, uh, in Rothville. So we were just, I guess it was a, a little tense just because my mom talks about how in Jamaica, everybody, everybody's very communal and you get here and people are very like isolated and they kind of want their own space. And my mom tells me this story about there was a woman who lived next to us and she had a baby. And my mom just thought, oh, she had a baby. I'm going to take my kids to come over and see the baby. And no big deal. Like my kids want to see the baby. And the woman was like, maybe some other time, like, you know what I mean? And, and my mom was like, oh, okay. You know, like she just didn't understand the way that Americans sort of function. So I think it was just a lot of, of that, of, of my parents trying to figure it out, me and my brother and my sisters trying to figure it out. What was the problem with the subway system that your dad had to be Superman to come in and save? It was something about safety. You know, my dad's an engineer, so I can't tell you specifically what it was, but something with the, the train track was not working and it was causing like small fires, something like that. And my dad knew how to fix it. And who even knows if this, you know. Is there a subway in, in Jamaica in the grill or something? <laughs> right. Like my dad, you know, was an engineer back, but he, maybe he's embellishing. Maybe this isn't even a true story. I have no idea. But it's, apparently he was able to get a job through. the. And I feel like things happened like that back then where like my parents would be like, before any of this happened, my mom would be like, you know what, you should just call up Jerry Seinfeld and you should just, you should tell him that you want to be on comedians in cars getting coffee. Like, cause in their head, oh, you just talk to someone and you ask them and you get it. And things just don't work like that anymore. But it actually kind of did work like that back then. You just kind of reached out and asked. So. Yeah. You may want to investigate that story a little bit, a little bit further <laughs> before you mention it in other interviews. <laughs> no, I believe him. I don't know what exactly it was, but I do believe him. Hey there, really quickly. Have you wanted to find your purpose or be more grateful or start a daily meditation practice, but you're not quite sure where to begin? Well, if inner work is like a drop of water, thehappinessinsiders.com is like your ocean. That's my online community where you can learn real-world techniques for cultivating more fulfillment from the inside out. So whether it's learning how to manifest abundance or access your potential or overcome fear or even just start walking every day, I've got a blueprint for you, which means you no longer have to use any more shoddy guesswork and you don't have to use the lone wolf approach to improving yourself. For a small accountability fee, you'll get community, you'll get accountability directly from me, and you'll get comprehensive instructions for getting your meditation practice off the ground. And for my podcast listeners, you'll receive 30% off of the all-access pass if you go to thehappinessinsiders.com right now and use the promo code HAPPY. Again, thehappinessinsiders.com. Enter the promo code HAPPY and you'll get 30% off on a yearly all-access pass, which gives you access to dozens of inner work challenges and masterclasses, such as my 108-day meditation challenge, which has an 80% completion rate. Plus, you get to join me live for weekly meditations on Zoom and much, much more. That's thehappinessinsiders.com. The code is HAPPY. All right, back to the episode. So your oldest sister had Treacher Collins syndrome and she couldn't hear? She's seven years older than me. So I didn't know. I don't think I really knew her when she couldn't hear by the time I came around and 
could talk to her. She'd flown to London for surgeries, back to Jamaica. Then we moved to Maryland and she had more surgeries. And so she was able to hear, but she, her face, if you've ever seen the movie, there's a movie called Wonder. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've seen that. Yeah, I mean, that's the same, that's the same thing. I mean, so really for me, it was more, people just thought she looked different for me. She just looked like my sister, but she just was bullied and, you know, stared at and laughed at. And it was just really hard for her growing up. Well, I was wondering, did your whole family speak sign language? Was that a thing? No, I mean, Charmaine used sign language and none of us did. I think she read lips and then she, through surgery, was eventually able to hear. So none of us learned sign language. I always wanted to learn, but my sister, she kind of felt like it made her special. So she, I, I think, so she just didn't want to teach me, but I learned a little bit. So you and Rachel were closer because you were closer in age. Right. We were closer. Yeah. Thinking back to little Sarah, you know, you're four or five years old in your house, four kids, etc. What was your favorite toy or activity? I liked make-believe a lot. Um, <laughs> <laughs> like I, re- I remember when like I, I, someone, I, I liked coloring. I love drawing. I won a drawing contest when I was did. like, yeah, when I was like in second grade. So I love making up stories. I always just loved creating things. I remember a friend like said that they had, I, I don't know where I, I feel like maybe it was on TV or something. They said something about an imaginary friend. And I was like, oh, wow, I can have an imaginary friend. So I just made up imaginary friends and basically was like a schizophrenic little (laughs) eight-year-old talking to myself. But I liked playing and making things up and and make-believe, playing with my dolls, making little stories with my dolls, all that stuff. What did you draw to win that contest? Do you remember? It was brilliant, actually. Um, (laughs) Because I don't think the drawing was actually actually that good, but it was a drawing of my teacher. Okay. And I feel like maybe she was one of the judges and she was like, Oh, Sarah, Drew, <laughs> oh. <laughs> you know, <laughs> cause I remember the drawing and it, it wasn't that great, but I basically was sitting there. They were like, draw something for the contest. I looked around, I saw my teacher sitting at her desk. I was like, that's what I'm going to draw. Cause it's right there. And so I drew her and it ended up on the cover of the little drawing booklet they put, they put together. Did you go to a big school? Like, were you, was there was the competition fierce, or uh, was it like a small class? I have no idea. I don't remember. I think I was in my own world. I feel like it was maybe like thirty kids in the class, and I was just drawing a lot, coloring a lot, and yeah, I was yeah. teaching that, so I just I tried to do everything right. That's a pretty big deal. I remember back when I was growing up, and you and I aren't that far apart in age, but there was a grocery store called Family Mart, and they used to have these. Every holiday, they'd have these like coloring contests. They'd give out these little Xerox copies of like a turkey or a Santa Claus, and you had to color them and you bring them back. And then yeah, they exactly they select right. they'd select one as the winner. Mm-hmm. And I won a couple of times. I remember feeling. I mean, that was like it's like I won an Academy Award because mm-hmm. every time you walk into Family Mart, you see your thing up there with first place, and I forget yeah. what, the, what the prize was, but that's a pretty big deal for a kid. It is a big deal, but I will tell you that I remember specifically, even as a child, having that, oh, they only picked it because it's a picture of my teacher. And I don't know where I got that from. It was in my head or someone else, but that was like the first like minimizing anything that happened or or like just rationalizing it. Like it wasn't me, it's someone else, you know, it wasn't me. So I was proud, but I was always like, oh, I don't know if it was 
actually that good. But <laughs> it's, it's interesting that you didn't, that wasn't intentional. It didn't sound like it was intentional. It sounds like you just decided to, that was what came through you. You put yeah. it down and then later on you connected the dots. Exactly. Yeah. Talk about your family dynamic a little bit. And, and, and what I'm really wanting to know is, you know, you guys are Jamaican, so you're in, you're in America. Was there some talk about cultural differences in the home? Was there talk about racism? Did you experience, I mean, you're in the chocolate city. So what was your relationship with, with all of that like? Yeah, I like to joke that my my Jamaican family just discovered racism like a, a few years ago because <laughs> <laughs> because we didn't talk about it. You know, when you come from Jamaica, it almost and I joke about this in my stand up too of just feeling like there are black people and then there are us. We're Jamaican. Uh-huh. Even though everyone thinks of us as black and we write we check the box black African American, we don't consider ourselves like African-American. And so there wasn't a lot of talk of racism or, or any of that stuff. We have, we had so many aunts, uncles, cousins in the area. That's who we would hang out with. We'd go to the Jamaican store. My mom would cook Jamaican food. You know, it was just like, we were kind of, I guess, continuing the culture. So yeah, there wasn't much discussion of that. I, you know, I, I remember my dad getting pulled over by the cops. Me and my sisters were in the car and they let him go. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I feel like my dad's always been like a little Republican with his views on policing and all of that stuff of just like, no, you just, you, you go along with what they say and you'll be fine. You know? And I've had several uncomfortable situations where with, with my white husband talking to my black father, where like my white husband is trying to tell my black father that racism exists. I mean, it's really, it's kind of a, it's a weird situation, but I think they just didn't see it. And you know, I think there's a benefit to like just pretending it's sort of like, no, that's not in my way. That's not a barrier. It doesn't exist. And then and then you actually you end up hitting it. So I, I think they eventually did start to see it. But I think at first it just didn't occur to them that that was that was the thing, because in Jamaica, people are Chinese, people are white, people are black, but they're all Jamaican. And there's really there's colorism, there's extreme colorism, but there isn't racism so much. So that story about you and your Jewish friend walking home. Is that a true story? Is that something just for your, is that a comedy bit? That was a true story. I changed it a little bit. My best friend growing up, her name was Stacy and she was Jewish and she again, still is Jewish, but um, she, (laughs) uh, she and I were walking and somebody yelled out. They didn't yell at the N word. They said um, they called her N word lover because she was walking with me. And I was like, I think I turned to her and I said, why did they call me that? You're not black. You know, like I didn't understand why. I mean, and there was other things like I had a a white kid like spit in my face when I was like in fourth grade or something like that. And I talked to my mom about it and I talked about like getting back at her and my mom saying, well, you know, that's where all this comes from. People retaliating and and you do something to me, I'm going to do something to you. And that's why you don't, you don't retaliate. And I remember having that conversation with her. What did you want to be when you were a kid, when you were walking home with Stacy? Like, well, in your mind, what, what did Sarah Cooper, what were you going to be when you grew up? I really wanted to be a singer. What kind of singer? Like, who was your, who were you modeling? Whitney Houston. That, that aspiration, aspirant. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you want to be Whitney Houston. <laughs> I wanted to be, I dressed up as Whitney Houston for one year for, for Halloween. That's what I wanted uh, to be. Yeah. I just uh, loved singing. 
was very bad at it, but I loved it. I tried out for chorus four years in a row, never made it. And then, you know, I found, I found acting because I think I tried out for a singing part in a musical. I think it was um, You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown. I didn't get a singing part, but I got the part of Pigpen. And so I was like, oh, I can be on stage and I can perform and I don't have to sing. Were you tone deaf or I mean, why can't you just practice? And I had this awful, awful music teacher. And I, to, the, to this day, I will blame him for <laughs> me not being able to sing because he told me I couldn't sing. I, but when I was very young, I was like third grade or something. He told me like, you can't sing. And I, and I feel like maybe if it had been a different music teacher who saw how badly I wanted to sing and like, I remember like sitting at my desk, they were calling out the names of who made it on chorus. And I was just waiting for my name, just waiting for my name. And they never called my name four years in a row. And it broke my heart every time. And I loved music and he just never gave me a chance. I, that's, I, I blame him. Yeah. Was this like an art school or was this like no, a it's just a regular, regular school? school? Yeah. Back, you know, it was a public school, public elementary school. You discovered your love for acting. You did some yeah. plays or yeah. started going started going to the Folgers Shakespeare Library. Yeah, in high school, I did that. I did a lot of Shakespeare. And um, yeah, I just loved performing. Now, I heard you say you were going to the library often, but it's, it wasn't very close to Rockville, Maryland. So how, how did that work? I would leave school early and take the metro and go down to D.C. and then go there and basically just study amongst the ancient texts. <laughs> the, the, the metro that did, never caught fire because your dad yep. obviously saved the day. Yep. And then, yeah, had free free metro cards. <laughs> so, Did you really? You had free metro cards? Yeah. Okay. Did you kind of feel like you owned the metro because your dad worked at the kind metro? Kind of, yeah. I was like, my dad owns this thing. <laughs> <laughs> I love the metro. My my when like we would we would get our parents to drop us off at at Wheaton Mall, and we would be like, oh yeah, we're hanging out at the mall. But the metro was connected to the mall, so then we'd get on the metro and we would go to our <laughs> cemetery. We would go downtown. We would go everywhere, and then we would go back to the mall, and my, our parents would pick us up, and they'd never know that we were. They all never over. figured. Yeah, they never figured it out. No, that's funny. Mm-hmm. Tell me more about the Shakespeare aspiration. Did you did you see yourself going on Broadway or? What was the acting move? Move to LA. What was yeah, that like? Yeah, I, I, yeah. I mean, I, I, I wrote a little contract with myself that I would go to LA and try to be an actress, and I would try it for ten years. And my dream, I told my teacher, I was like, by age thirty, I'm going to win an Oscar. And you know, I just had all of these aspirations for it, but I just. I feel like I was more in love with the glory of it than the actual acting. I didn't really like practicing so much, you know, and every time my my um, acting teacher would be like, well, let's practice the monologue. I'd be like, oh, I don't want to practice the monologue. I just want to do the monologue, you know, like, so I feel like I didn't have the best work ethic when it came to it. And so giving it up because my parents were like, hey, that's never going to make you money, like, wasn't that hard because there were so many things about it that I didn't like, like I didn't like the practicing of it. I didn't like the movement and the voice work and all the stuff that you really have to do to be a good actor. I didn't really enjoy it that much. Where did you get the idea of contracts and affirmations and those kinds of of things? That's a really good question. I have no idea. I have absolutely no idea. I have no idea. Like I, 
why I wrote up a contract. I had my sister like witness it. You know, I signed <laughs> it, she witnessed it. And it was like, why am I doing this? But I, I, I can't tell you. I, I, w- I wish I, if there's a TV show that I saw or something, but I just, I was like, I have to promise myself. I have to make, make, do something to promise myself that I will not give up on my dream. And maybe it was just because I felt like I was being told to give up on my dream, that I mm. had to do something that would actually just make me feel like, no, there's still, I still have some control. Like I can promise myself and I can do this for myself. Even after school is over, college is over, I can still do this. So was that one of the dominant life philosophies that were echoed in your house? Or were there any other sayings that your parents would say to you all about what to do, own your own business and always work for yourself and never let rely on a man to take care of like what kind of stuff was being <laughs> was being said said in your house? Yeah, I mean a lot of that stuff. I remember going to homecoming and my dad giving me money for dinner and I was like, you know, I think my I think Alex will pay for the dinner. And my dad was like, don't ever let any man buy any food for you ever. <laughs> and I was like, okay, dad. <laughs> so it was all about being independent, being financially independent, being on your, you know, being able to take care of yourself, own a house, like have a good job, you know, all about security. Like that's, that's what it was all about. You're in Rockville, Maryland, D.C. metropolitan area. We know you heard about Howard University, but you chose to go to University of Maryland College Park. Yeah, I got a scholarship. Okay, but did you apply to Howard? Oh, no. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) So that that point you just made is a moot point. (laughs) You have to apply to a place to get a scholarship. Yeah, true, true. Nope. Didn't even think about applying to Howard. So talk talk a little bit about that. Well, why why University of Maryland? You just wanted to stay stay home or be close to your parents? It was my safety school. I applied to Cornell, I applied to UPenn, I applied to NYU, I applied to UNC Chapel Hill for some reason. I applied to those five schools. I got into all of them and got a partial scholarship to University of Maryland. So that's where I went. I mean, that's it's pretty much it. Did you ever go to Howard? Did you ever go to the campus, homecoming, nothing? Nothing. Mm-mm. Nope. You know, Drew and I went to Howard. You, you knew that, right? I just remembered that. <laughs> <laughs> I just that's why I'm so that. passionate about it. I know, I know, I know. Um, this, this Howard thing. Yeah. Why did yeah. you go to Howard? I went to Howard because... I decided in high school that I wanted to go to an HBCU, historically black college university. And Howard is like the Harvard of HBCUs. And then I went to DC to visit with my dad for the first time. And I just loved DC. I mean, I was coming from Montgomery, Alabama. So to me, DC was like Shanghai. I mean, it was like the biggest city I'd ever seen in my entire life. Yeah. I just liked the idea of being around a lot of other black people from a lot of other places around the world. And seeing what that experience was like. I was around white people my entire growing up. Like I Uh I was always the only black person in every class, in every like situation. There was black girls at my high school, but they hated me and they bullied me. And like, it was awkward growing up and being like, 
black, but then people constantly being like, what are you? What are you? Which is a question I got all the time. And I just never felt like I really belonged. I I won't say that I belonged with white people, but I never really felt like I belonged with black people either. I just felt like I was in some kind of limbo. And I think when I was thinking of applying to schools, I just, I was applying to places that I thought were like prestigious and people, other people were talking about in my school. No one ever said, why don't you apply to Howard? Like no one ever said that to me. <laughs> Who is it? Probably like, I wouldn't have because I didn't have a lot of black friends. I just didn't. Right. If I had a black friend, she, they were Jamaican. They were family probably, you know? Yeah. So you were obviously being teased because you weren't black enough or you sound like you're trying to talk white or whatever people say in, in, in school. Yeah, it was some of that. It was like, <laughs> it was so stupid. It was like, oh, Sarah has good hair. That was the, that was the thing. I was like, I had yeah. good hair. And so the black guys were all like really like all about me because I had good hair, which I didn't even know what that meant. And then all the black girls like hated me because I had good hair, which I didn't know what that meant. So uh, I know what it means now. But. So you finished up Maryland three and a half years with an economics degree? Yep. An economics degree. Yep. Most what the hell were you going to do with an economics? I have no <laughs> idea. Literally. I was, I was like a theater major for a little bit. And then my parents were like, you know, you should really do something in business. So then I was going to do theater slash business. But then I was like, I, this is too much work. So I was just like, I'll do business. But then I went over to the business school to like, see what that was like. And it was so like schmoozy and like fake. And like, I don't know, I just didn't feel like I really liked it. And so then I it was like, well, I could do economics because economics is like the nerdy business. You know, it's like, it's good enough for my dad, but it's not, I, I felt like I could do, I could sit there and do like math, like problems, like theoretical stuff, but I didn't want to actually be like in business. I just wanted to like get the degree. So it was really more about just like, how can I get this degree, make my parents happy and move on with my life? Cause I know I'm never going to do anything in economics. What was your idea of success like back then in college? I think being famous, being famous. I think I always wanted to be famous. Yeah. I wanted to, I wanted, I just had this vision of like walking down the street and everybody like knowing who I was, Right. (laughs) you know, like, I think that was in my head. I was like, I'm going to do something big like that. I didn't know what it was going to be though. But not necessarily for acting just in general, like you could be famous for, for anything. Yeah. I mean, I think in my head I was going to be like a movie star and that's what I wanted to do. And it was just this idea of like being a movie star and then it would like come and go. Like, I'd be like, oh, I want to be a movie star. You know what? I just want to have kids and settle down. No, I want to be a movie star. And I just want to like have a normal life. If I just kind of went back and forth between those two modes. So what did you discover about yourself through the college years? Now that you're kind of removed from your parents a little bit from their influence. Now you get to see the real Sarah kind of emerging. I don't know. I really didn't know what I was doing. I think... I did very well with my classes as, again, a teacher's pet. But again, I was like, looking back, I would say I focused very much on the grade and the outcome. And like, I didn't make as many friends as I could have. I didn't, you know, I certainly don't keep in touch with people as much as I could have. I was like teacher's pet and the fact that like I was able to do everything on my own, but did I 
make friends with any of the teachers? Did I stay after class? Did, did we have like good conversations? No, it was more about just like getting the grade and getting out of there. And I think that was kind of my, my mode was just like getting the grade and getting out of there. And then I had a group of friends and uh, I was dating this guy. We were like pretty serious for a few years and, you know, we were going to get married. And then it all fell apart because I think I just, I had this, it wasn't my idea of happiness. Like I was like, no, I have to be on my own. I have to like, I have to be true to myself. I remember that contract I made with myself. I can't settle down. I have to like go, I have to pursue my dream and all this stuff. So it was, I think I just was very self-centered and very like, I didn't really know what was going on around me. Cause I was just like, I had, I felt like I had blinders on basically. And I made a lot of mistakes with, in terms of relationships. Like I really didn't focus on relationships as much as I, I wish I would have. It sounds like you're very disciplined. I was very disciplined. Yeah. Yeah. I wasn't one of those who like went off to college and all of a sudden didn't do my homework anymore. Like, no, I was, I was very much doing my homework and working hard. And how'd you end up at Georgia Tech? My last semester of Maryland, I took a multimedia design course and just fell in love with like Photoshop and macromedia flash and like designing things. And it was something that like felt technical, but creative. And so it was like two, it like satisfied both of those sides of me. And after I graduated, I told myself that I was going to get a receptionist job at a graphic design studio and work my way up to be a graphic designer. So I, I became a receptionist. I was a terrible receptionist. I'm terrible at ordering supplies and answering the phone and doing all the things. But I was reading a magazine, a graphic design magazine. In the back of the magazine was an ad for some reason for this program at Georgia Tech, which was a pretty new program at the time for like information design, which was something that I knew I wanted to do, like based on that multimedia design course. And so the deadline had already passed. It, had, it was like three weeks passed, but I was like, I'm going to apply anyway. And so I I'm just going to call him. I'm going to call him and, and work yeah. it on the phone. <laughs> Literally, actually, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, 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 the, the deadline had passed, but I said, you know what? I'm going to go down there. I took a trip down to Atlanta. I met the professor. I said, I really want to do this. And I told them that I was going to be in Atlanta no matter what. And even though that wasn't true. And yeah, I kind of, I got into the program. You talked your way into it. That's awesome. Not a little bit, not really. Like I, a little bit. <laughs> so, was that did you have to take out loans, or was that scholarship thing as well? I think my parents helped me with a little bit, and then I was a teacher's assistant, so that helped a little bit. So, for someone who doesn't identify heavily with Black culture, you keep picking these really Black cities. You're in DC, and now you're in Atlanta. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it, Atlanta is a different quality of experience from DC? You have that Southern culture mixed in. What was that like for you? I think Atlanta was like the perfect place for me to go because I never really felt lost there. Like I felt like it was like a big city, but it also felt like a small city. And I guess that's the Southern thing. And you just, you, I, I never really hung, I never really like went and partied in DC, but I felt like I kind of like party in Atlanta and I didn't feel like, I don't know. I just felt comfortable there. Maybe just because it was, I don't know, there was only like a few buildings downtown. So like, as soon as you could look up and see like the one building, like, okay, that's South. Like, so now I know where I am. Like, I, I don't know. I felt very comfortable there. I stayed, the first place I stayed was in a converted dorm that used to be a hotel, like right across from the baseball stadium. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, it was fun. 
when I lived in New York, I was hanging out with this guy named Artie Fuqua. And he introduced me to this guy named Godfrey, who's a comedian. And we were hanging out at the comedy cellar one night. It was empty. It's like maybe a few people there. I think Godfrey was hosting or something. It was like a Monday. It was like it's an off night. And I had been a casual fan of comedy. And Godfrey came over and, and sat at our table and talked to us. And then he started sort of egging me to go up on stage. And I didn't know at the time that doing stand-up comedy was like a whole, you, you write jokes yeah. and you rehearse them like an Easter speech at church or something. Mm -hmm, and yeah. you go up and you perform them as if you're thinking about it for the first time. And I was very, very close. I was very tempted to go up, but I, I elected not to. And I'm kind of glad that I didn't go up because I would have really been horrible. And uh, <laughs> I've always had an affinity for, for stand-up, but I've never really had enough of a desire to go up. But you, you obviously took the plunge. You went up on stage in Atlanta. Talk yeah. about that first time. What kind of preparation did you do? What was your inspiration? <laughs> Where was this? Who was around you? This is a very personal story between you and me. Okay. You know this story? No, I've never heard. Do you know it. that your brother was the subject of my very first stand-up set? I had no, I was going to ask you, that was my next question is how'd you meet my brother? But talk, let's, <laughs> let's, let's get a twofer. I couldn't remember if I told you this. Did you yeah. date him or something? Did I not tell you any of this? No, I had no has, idea. Has he not told you any of this? No, we've never talked oh about it. <laughs> oh my God. I guess the statute of limitations is good so we can talk about it. <laughs> I was trying to be an actress again, like doing like graphic design on the side and like trying to act. And I, <laughs> I got a, a brilliant role as an extra in an ESPN commercial. And, um, <laughs> Is this, a, is this a casting couch story with my brother? As No, not necessarily. But I, okay. I was on set as an extra in this house. We're shooting like a Super I want to say a Super Bowl commercial or something like where like, there's a party and like everybody's hanging out. So anyway, I'm, I'm standing there waiting for anything to happen because you're just waiting on these sets. And your brother walks by. And <laughs> I hope this isn't awkward, but... I fell in love with your brother. <laughs> I was like, that's the most beautiful man I've ever seen in my life. And I was like, oh, I guess he's an actor. But then it turned out he was the director of the commercial. And I don't know what happened, but I ended up going on a date with him. It was like a complete disaster. It wasn't a complete disaster, but like. What is that like to go on a date with Drew Watkins? I have no idea what that would be like. Okay, I'll tell you. I can imagine, but I, I have no idea. I what took him to my favorite restaurant, Houston's. Okay. In Buckhead. In Buckhead. I'm sitting at a booth and Drew's sitting across from me. And above my head is a television with a game on. <laughs> and most of the date was spent watching him watch the television above my head. It was... For someone who had a little bit of an ego, it didn't feel great. And so, yeah, I mean, it just, it didn't, it didn't really work out with me and your brother, but I, I wrote a, I wrote a standup bit about it. <laughs> <laughs> and how old are you? are like 25, 26 at the time. I was actually 30. You wrote this story. You didn't envision yourself going up on stage and delivering this joke anywhere, but then an opportunity 
obviously presented no, itself. No, I was trying to act and I really was like not all my, like I was auditioning. I wasn't getting anywhere and I wanted to try stand up as a way to get better at acting because I was mm-hmm. really finding that I couldn't be myself. And that's really what acting is. You, you feel, you think it's being a character, but it's really more about like being as authentically you as you possibly can, which I still haven't figured out. But I thought if I could get on stage and be myself in front of an audience, that it would help me be a better actor. So I knew I wanted to try stand up, And then I just figured, oh, this is a good story that I could tell on stage. And where was the place to go for someone who wants to try stand up in Atlanta? That was Laughing Skull Lounge on Peachtree which is like every street is named Peachtree. So but right. the, main, the main Peachtree. <laughs> South, South Peachtree, North. Yeah. 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 So did you, you walked in the first day, you had to sign your name on some list or how did it work? Yeah, I got there really early. Cause you know, I'm an A student. So I got there really early. They were like, do you want to practice before the actual show? And they let me get on stage and I practiced my story. I was talking talking a mile a minute. And I was like, okay, I need to slow down and I need to get drunk. So then I I had like several beers and then it was just like, so fun. Like I actually have the video of it. It was crowded. It was like the owner of Laughing Skull was hosting the mic and he called my name up. Sarah Cooper is next. And I went up there, shook his hand and I was really drunk and yeah. What was what was the intro? Because normally they, you know, so and so you'll recognize from this TV show or that radio spot. But what was your intro? I mean, like? my intro was probably first time here at the Laughing Skull Lounge, Sarah Cooper, or something like that. Because he'd never seen my name before, so there was a good audience, but everybody on stage was new. You know, right? Yeah. Well, normally at those situations, people will bring their friends, so their friends will root for them. But then, yeah, and I had my friend, and he was recording for me, and yeah. So how'd it go? I mean, it went really well. I mean, I was drunk, but I I really enjoyed it. I ended up doing, I was only supposed to do five minutes. I think I did like seven. They were like, get off the stage. So yeah, they don't, they don't like that very much. No, 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 but I just, I really enjoyed it. There are two things I learned. And the one was it's so much more fun to make people laugh than to make them cry, which is like Shakespeare is like, make people cry, you know, like dramas, like make people cry, cry, cry. And then I was like, oh, actually, no, I like making people laugh, which is true to who I am as a person. Mm. I hate making people cry. <laughs> like that's the worst feeling in the world. So like, I really found that. And then I just found that I liked writing my own lines. I liked dressing as myself. I liked telling my own stories. So I, I think that's, those are the two things that I discovered. So it sounds like you had a little bit of beginner's luck. In the sense that oh, yeah. you were brand, brand new at this thing. What did you do well that you didn't even realize you did well that first time? I responded to the audience. Mm-hmm. I think that's probably a mistake that people, it, the first time you go up, it's natural to just be like, let me say what I have to say and go. But I took my time. We're like, you know, yelling stuff and I responded. You know, I, I think I was just comfortable in that way. Mm. Yeah. And were you were you working at Yahoo at this point, or were you still at Georgia Tech? I was freelancing at this point. I had left Yahoo. I'd moved. I moved to Atlanta twice. So like I left Atlanta, I moved back to Atlanta, and and I was like freelancing, and so I was just working on my own and and auditioning for like Vampire Diaries and Army Wives and all kinds of like shows that shot in in the South, and and then taking classes and just trying to get better. And that's when I tried stand up. What was your day job? I was doing freelance design. <laughs> like okay. Like websites at, and hey, yeah. you need a flyer done and that kind of thing. 
Yeah, yeah, mostly just websites and designing apps, designing homepages, you know, just anything online. Mm-hmm. Front end or back end? All front end, yeah. So you were using Dreamweaver? Oh, no, I was Photoshop. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just make it look good. That's Got basically it. what I was doing, yeah. Okay, so then what was the sort of next evolution in your stand-up comedy career? I left and went to New York shortly after that. And I think I was still thinking I wanted to act and I had gotten, (laughs) I gotten a small part on a show and figured maybe now was the time to like really go for it. And so I moved, I moved to New York just for a summer. I got into a, an acting conservatory, Stella Stella Adler acting conservatory for a summer and was just going to go for a summer, but then I really liked New York. And so I ended up staying here. Did you have to sing as a part of the audition process? No, thank God. <laughs> you, do you know? Do you know the Alabama Shakespeare Festival Conservatory? No. It's a really prestigious acting conservatory in the South. It's in my, my hometown, Montgomery, Alabama. When I was living in New York, I auditioned for it, and I had to sing, and I had to I had to do a monologue, and I wasn't. I mean, I was kind of like modeling ish. Mm-hmm. acting, but I'd never had any singing training whatsoever. And I was a terrible, terrible singer, but I, I decided to take the leap of faith. And I in, went in there and sang Onward Christian Soldiers, cause, which is the only song that I kind of halfway knew from my old church days in, in Alabama. Wow. <laughs> and I've never been more self-conscious. Well, actually, I've been more self-conscious in one other period, which we won't even talk about, but it was one <laughs> of my most self-conscious it's experiences the most in my entire life. Vulnerable thing to me. Like people are like, oh, stand up is so hard. I'm like, singing is so hard. I feel like it's in all of us. And I, I, I'll tell you to this day, I still like five years ago, I was taking singing lessons. It's still something I want to do. It's still something I wish I could do. It requires such vulnerability for, mm. in, personally. Like I commend anybody who does it in public. <laughs> mm-hmm. So you're back in, you're in New York now. You took a job at Google. Like, how did that? Yeah. I mean, I I basically was in New York. I was like barely able to like afford living here. And the freelance design stuff was sort of like drying up because I wasn't doing a good job of like promoting that as a business because I was kind of obsessed with acting and doing stand-up. And so I just, I got to a point where I was like, and a lot of credit card debt, $20,000 in credit card debt, and just wanted to stay in New York and just figured the only way I could stay was to get a job. And I had a friend who I went to Georgia Tech with who was working at Google here in New York. And, and she said, you know, do you want to apply for a job here? And I said, yeah, I do. And so I, I applied. And it was, it was like a very bittersweet thing because I was like giving up on my dream yet again. <laughs> but at the same time, like I really didn't, I really didn't have a choice at that point if I wanted to stay in New York. It's interesting because now you're like a, you're like a standup comedian working in the office, right? Even right. though Google is a lot more progressive and probably Yahoo is as well. And the thing about that I've observed about comedians is, is that they're very observant people. Like they notice everything that most people just don't even realize. And you had started, you kept, you started keeping this little notebook mm-hmm. yeah, when you were at Yahoo. Kind of, mm-hmm. Yep. I was always like, writing things down. <laughs> yeah. Make, yeah. Making these little notes about these oddities that you would, you would see in these conference rooms and meetings and stuff. What was yeah. the first, do you remember the first note you, you'd sort of doodled about 
your observations, your weird observations? I think the Venn diagram was the first one. And then the someone like translating percentages into fractions was like the second one. I, I think the Venn diagram, like someone actually got up and drew a Venn diagram that, that really made no sense. It's weird that this actually happens. People actually get up and draw things that make no sense and nobody ever says anything about it because they're just like, oh, I... I guess we should try to make sense of this thing that makes no sense. <laughs> you know, everybody's so polite in corporate America. They're so like, okay, yeah, let's, let's, let's figure this out, you know? And I wrote that down because the person who drew it was obviously not paying attention. And I think also because I'm an immigrant, I just was always like, what's the norm here? Like, what's everybody doing? How can I do that to fit in and, and make it? Cause this was like from when I was three, like always like, how can I fit in? And so I think in corporate America, a lot of my notes were like, this is what people are doing. <laughs> you know, this is what I can do maybe to like fit in. Even, even when I worked at an ad agency, I was noticing like my creative director would walk around and he would always have like this look on his face. Like he was never impressed with anything. And I thought of that as like an act. I was like, Oh, maybe he's just pretending to not be impressed so he can get more work out of us. You know, I was always just noticing things like that. And I think, yeah, the Venn diagram and then the, and then I, I never did anything with them. You know, I just kind of put it away. Was it preparation for stand-up comedy bit, perhaps? No, not a, not at all. I mean, I thought I didn't think it was anything. I mean, when I when I started like actually blogging, I think that's the first time that I was like, oh, maybe I could turn it into a blog post. You know, like that was I never thought, oh, I could turn this into stand-up. So then you had your whole other stand-up preparation where you were. Yeah, I was taking uh, classes at Comedy Cellar just talking a lot about my Jamaican family and dating because I was a single girl and that's, those were the subjects. So it was kind of separate for a while. I, I think towards the end of my time at Google, I started to like do some more Google stuff, but it was so specific to Google and people really didn't know like what it was like to work there. So the jokes worked on my coworkers, but they didn't work very well on like most people. So. But they could, you just had to figure out a way to kind of bridge that yeah, gap because exactly. ultimately you started, you started incorporating those. I saw a video of you, I think you were in San Francisco or something like that. You were, you've been doing a bunch of the office jokes. Yes. I mean, and a place like San Francisco will definitely like get it, but like, yeah, there's a little bit more setup that you need to talk about that stuff. But also I think people are just much more familiar with these companies too. So, and what they're like because of Silicon Valley, the show and all those kinds of things. But it's weird being like, Oh, I have this thought, like, what is it? Is it a blog post? Is it stand up? Is it a video? Is it, you know, is it a cartoon? What is it? And that's the awesome thing is that like some of these things have been all of those things for me. Like I've, been able to do all of that with it, but it's just a lot. It has just been a lot of experimentation, you know, like you have mm. an idea and then you're like, how do I bring this idea to life? What's the best way to do it? And that mm. was fun for me. At this point, we're 2012, you and I cross paths. I'm in New York teaching yeah. meditation and I guess since you, you, you're in a relationship with my ex, with my, with no, I was <laughs> never, <laughs> since you were an imaginary relationship with imaginary, my yeah, imaginary, sure. Let's go. That. Talk you, to me about your path to meditation. Does Drew listen to this by the way? No, he doesn't okay. listen to it. Because <laughs> I feel really bad. <laughs> well, it was weird. Cause I don't know how I found out about your meditation practice. I think it must've been through Facebook and maybe it was because I was connected to Drew that I saw it. 
I do I remember mean, you mentioning to me that you knew my brother and that's how you found me. But what, what inspired you to even look at meditation or were you following me on Facebook or something? And then I posted a meditation. Like, were you thinking, even thinking about meditation outside of that? I honestly feel like I'm so influenced by other people that have like success that I want. And so I feel like I probably was somebody who I admired talked about meditation and I'm not sure who it was, but I think that's what happened. And I was like, that's what made me want to try it. And so you came, you learned the meditation, you start meditating. Yeah, I was meditating in the nap pods at Google. There was this like library on our floor and in the back of the library was this shelf. And if you push the shelf, the door would open and there was like this hidden place where you could like hang out and I would meditate in the morning, in the afternoon, 20 minutes after I took your session. Okay. So how did that inform your trajectory? I think it was, it helped me just sort of accept things more. I think that it was like, I was bored at work. Sometimes I was frustrated. There were other things I wanted to do with my life. And I think meditating helped me take it in instead of forcing things as much as I had been. I feel like that's kind of what happened. It was just something that I, that I did. And it helped me be just more present at work. And, and I wasn't sitting there like, Oh, let me try to come up with jokes. I was really just trying to like, be in touch with whatever that inner thing is. I was trying to like, just get in touch with that. And perhaps it was a comedian who inspired me because that's the thing that I've always struggled with on stage is just like being myself and Mm -hmm. not really caring so much what the audience thinks or laughs at, but just having the confidence to like, know that I'm talking about something important and who cares if this person's yawning or this person's on their phone. Like, I'm just going to, I'm going to do my thing. And I feel like I didn't want meditation to come up with ideas. I wanted it to give me that confidence. I wanted it to give me that central confidence, that feeling inside that like what I was saying was enough, you know, and I was enough and I didn't have to like keep pushing and trying and like forcing things because forcing things for me has always led to bad things. And and so I think that's what it helped me with is just, I, I stopped forcing things. You got the inspiration as well to do a medium post about these 10 tricks for appearing smart in meetings, which ended up going viral. I think at the end of the day, it got like over 5 million views and all of that. Was that something you did on a lark? Yeah, it was. I moved in with my now husband and I came across that notebook from Yahoo and I came across those, that Venn diagram and the, and the percentages. And I said, Oh, I should turn this into something. I should make this into a blog post maybe. And that's when I finished it, like seven years after I'd initially written, written that, I, I actually shared it with the world and that's what happened. And it was a, it was a lark. It was, I didn't think anything was going to come of it. I thought, oh, this is pretty funny, but I put it on Medium. I wasn't thinking it was going to change my life. And how did that feel when it went viral? It was really exciting. It was like July 4th. It was around July 4th of 2014. And Jeff and I were like on vacation and I just remember like my phone blowing up and it was just so exciting. And that was the first time I'd gone viral doing anything. And, and so I loved it. I just loved seeing people share it. I love seeing people talk about it. I love seeing people comment on it. I loved it all. It was great. Were you obsessed? Were you checking it every like, Oh yeah, I was obsessed. I was obsessed. I was like trying to like everybody's comment, you know, just like on Twitter or whatever. And then Jeff built this like add-on that would like automatically like 
all of the things that I wanted to like for me. And then like my Twitter shut down because of it. Cause it was like, I don't know, whatever, but like, I, we were both like really excited about it. So now you're thinking to yourself, okay, maybe this is, yeah, maybe this is it. Maybe this is the time to take the leap of faith, mm-hmm. leave Google. Yeah. I mean, I discovered an audience of people that like loved what I wrote and I'd never had that before. And I was also taking a, guitar and singing lessons at the time too, still trying to sing. And my teacher said, you know, one thing you need to focus on is getting people who don't know you, who aren't your friends and family to want something that you've done, like to come Mm. and see you, to buy something like people that don't know you at all that like what you do. And that's what happened with that article. Like I finally had people who, who wanted that. And so that kind of gave me the confidence that I didn't have before that I could maybe be a writer or, or actually try it. Did the book deal come to you or did you seek it out? That was kind of a long process. I tried to quit Google. I mean, I tried to quit. I did quit Google. My my manager was like, do you have a book deal? Because I told him I wanted to be a writer. And I said, no, I don't have a book deal. But then I started researching book deals. I started putting together a proposal. That never would have happened. The cold calling, like all of that stuff, it never would have happened. What happened was I decided I wanted to draw and I wanted to turn this 10 tricks to appear smart meetings into a cartoon. And I did that. And then it went viral again, six months after it went viral initially. And that's when I started to actually get publishers writing to me. And once I had a publisher interested, then I was able to use that to get an, a literary agent who I, Susan Ray Hoffer, who's my literary agent, who I still have to this day. It all sort of happened because I kept just putting myself out there. Yeah, you were one of the early adopters to the iPad drawing phenomenon with the pen and all of that, right? Yeah, I had like my, uh, like Jeff got me a little Wacom tablet and I didn't know how to draw freehand. So I started tracing stock photos. And because I knew Photoshop and everything, it was pretty easy for me to figure out how to trace it and turn it into like, you know, a JPEG and put it online and stuff. And it worked really well because it was so cheesy and like the articles are just kind of a cheesy article. So, so speaking of, of putting stuff out there for people who don't know you, I'm sure that's the moment where you start getting bad reviews and people who don't necessarily get what you're trying to do and all of that. How, how are you with, with that? Not great. I mean, I, you know, negative comments, <laughs> It's like positive comments wash over me. Negative comments I bury in my heart, in my mind, and I, I I remember them constantly. I don't know why, but I remember like a newsletter. I put out a newsletter and like got like negative comments on it and negative comments on my YouTube videos. And the, the thing that I thought was fun was like people not understanding that it was satire and being like, why are you trying to appear smart meetings? You should just be smart. And I was like, that's the joke. But that was kind of funny. I kind of like when people don't get, you know, don't get it. But when the book came out and like people started like shitting on the book, like that was hard because I was really proud of it. And I was really proud of myself for, for writing it and putting it out there. But then when you have people saying it's not good, I just start to doubt myself. I'm like, Oh, I, I thought it was good, but I guess I'm wrong. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, I guess that that's the thought that comes in your head. So like, it's that's the hardest thing about putting yourself out there is like the people that are just so mean and their people can be really mean. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, particularly if what you're doing hasn't really gotten 
traction. Yeah. It can definitely cause you to doubt yourself. But I feel like in my own experience, like I've put out a few books now, or a couple books, I have a third one coming out. You have three or four books and a coloring book and all this stuff. Like you get to a point where you just like, it just washes over. I had a book, had negative reviews. I moved on. I wrote the next book, you know, thought, thought there was going to be so many negative reviews. It's almost weird when you have like, you know, you want a, you want a bunch of attention. You want it to be a bestseller, but then you just get some negative reviews. You get some positive reviews. It doesn't become a bestseller and people just kind of forget about it. It's almost worse than <laughs> you just had like, if everyone just hated it and talked about it so much, because then you're just like, I worked so hard on this. And like, it just was a blip. Like nobody... Like, I really thought, like, being an author and putting out a book, like, I thought I was going to be a millionaire. Like, I thought I was going to change my life. You know, I thought I would get to that thing. And it just, it didn't happen. It was just so sort of anticlimactic. And then with everything that I do, I feel like it's not like it gets easier. It's still hard because I keep going into these different mediums. Like, I did a Netflix special, which received some of the, the most, the meanest reviews I've ever seen in my life. And that was like, a new level of like self-confidence, like killer, you know? So I feel like it never, I, I, my skin is a little bit thick and I just have good days and bad days. And some days I'm just like, no, I'm, I'm shit. I don't know what I'm doing. And then I have some days and I'm like, no, I did that. That was good. I'm proud of myself. I think it just kind of like goes back and forth, but like, it never is just like, oh, I'm going to read a review and who cares what, what people think. I wish I could get to a point where I'm like, who cares what people think, but I do care what I do care what people think when you make something and you want people to enjoy it and they don't, you feel bad. Right. That's probably why Trump blocked you in 2017 because yeah. he felt like he was making something that was good and you didn't yes. necessarily. like. It. Trump and I have a lot in common. Yeah, we do. <laughs> <laughs> what, what did you say that made him block? It made Donald I, Trump block you in 2017. I, I literally just said that he wasn't fit for office. I mean, it was just a nothing tweet of just like, Donald Trump is not fit for office. And I think it was just because it was starting to get likes and retweets that he saw it. And then he blocked me. It was crazy. And I went to his, I, I remember going to his Twitter feed and it was just like, Donald Trump has blocked you. And I was like, what? The president has blocked me? That's so weird. That's kind of like a badge of honor though, huh? It was. I mean, I did that on stage. I said the president blocked me and I got cheers. People right. were happy. Yeah. You were an avid Twitter user. Yeah, I've been for a long time. You had kind of given yourself a deadline to for this comedy thing to kind of take off. Yeah, I was hoping in the beginning of 2020 to have like a late night set because I just felt like, why have I been working on stand up for like eight years now on and off? And I don't have anything like a real accomplishment with it to show. And so I just felt like that was my goal. Get on late night, do a late night set. And if it didn't happen in 2020, then I was just going to maybe go back to Google. (laughs) Were there any uncomfortable conversations with your husband during this time? Like, hey, I'm not really making as much money as I was before when I was working at Google when we got married. Now I'm trying to do that. Was he very, obviously very supportive? He was like really supportive. I mean, he was like, it's fine. It's no big deal. I think maybe, I don't know if this is old school, but he kind of likes being the breadwinner. He kind of likes taking care of me. So he, he kind of liked that role. So I don't, he never really felt like, why isn't Sarah pulling her weight? He was always like, oh, it's okay. You know, I'm supporting you. But my mom was like, he's going to leave you, <laughs> you know, because um, <laughs> I didn't, I don't cook either. So he, my, my parents would be like, so wait, he brings home the bacon. And then he also has to cook the bacon. <laughs> like he does everything, you know? And I felt bad about that. 
I felt bad about, you know, like turning 40 and just thinking about where am I going to be in 20 years? Like, do I have retirement? Like who's going to take care of my sisters? Like, you know, they both have disabilities, like um, neither of them are married. And, you know, I just started to feel like, what is my long-term plan? Like at 40, that was the first time I was like, what am I doing? Like, what's my community? What's my support system? Like, how am I going to like take care of my family and survive this so that I can live a long life and and be happy and comfortable and healthy and all that stuff. And I just thought going back to Google might be a good option because I'd have a consistent paycheck. I'd have a place to go. It's a great place to work. You know, I I love writing a lot more than I loved what I did there, but at the same time, it wasn't hell, you know, it was, it's Google free food, you know, nap pods, you know, why wouldn't I just go back? And I told Jeff that and I, he was like, no, you're not going to go back. Um, I think we had that conversation pretty much every year. I, I was like, maybe I'll go back to Google. And no, you're not going to go back. So I always thought of it as an option to go mm-hmm. back. And was it your brother's son that taught you TikTok in the summer of 2019? Yes, it was my nephew, Tyler. And he's super into like YouTube and now he's into Twitch he has a whole green screen setup that's better than mine. So <laughs> but I was like, Tyler, I want you to teach me TikTok. It was a, it was the weekend before their classes had started again. And I just went down to DC. I was in New York and I just went down to DC to, to hang out with them for a weekend, which was rare. I never did that before. That was the first time I'd ever just been like, yeah, there's no reason I'm down here. I'm just here to hang out. We're not going to do anything. We're going to order pizza, watch TV. And it was great. I was like, yeah, teach me TikTok. I want to know what this TikTok thing is all about. And Aunt Sarah, you're you're too old for TikTok. Like, what do you know? I'm not going to teach you TikTok. And I made a few videos, but then I was like, okay, maybe I am too old for this. Do you really want to learn it? Or are you just looking for something to do with him? Because that's what I've done with my nieces. It's like, yeah, show me TikTok. Like, I didn't, I didn't really, I, was, I didn't see myself being like a TikTok star, but I was a little bit mildly curious about how the app, the app worked. And I knew that they knew it well. Yeah, no, I really wanted to learn it. I did. I didn't think I didn't think I was going to actually do anything with it, but I really did want to like figure it out and figure out why it was so much fun because uh-huh. everybody was on it. You know, he was talking about it all, all the time. He said that there were people there on TikTok that were way funnier than me. And I was like, what? <laughs> so I was like, I need to figure this out. You mentioned later on when you were guest hosting, was it The Tonight Show or The Jimmy yeah, Kimmel, Kimmel. So yeah. you mentioned that at the beginning of the pandemic, you had done, a, you were doing stand up at a pizza place in New Jersey. Was that, was that real? I mean, it was a pizza place in Williamsburg, but yeah, okay. <laughs> it was a pizza place and it wasn't like a few people. It was, it was more than a few people, but I definitely performed for three people Yeah, late at, late at night several times. Yeah. And so when the pandemic hit and we couldn't gather anymore, well, how are you seeing your stand-up career? I just decided that I wanted to make videos online. I was like, I've made stuff online before. I've gone viral before. Why don't I try to do that again? So I think I just decided that I, I was going to make videos and I started making them. And I was just experimenting, trying to find a format that I liked, trying to find something that I thought was was fun to make. And I was just playing around. I've written up before about how when people like do things that are noteworthy or remarkable, they end up retelling the story of that first time they did it. And that day, like they woke up and, you know, you had no idea this was going to be the day that is going to sort of launch this new thing. What was that day like for you where you did your first uh, Trump impersonation on TikTok? 
How long did that take? What was the lead up to it? The very first one, bored, very bored. Trump had just given a talk where he was just talking about, literally he was listing companies and he was just like listing all these companies that supported him. And I was like, this is so stupid. So like I grabbed the audio and I was just like, I don't remember the names of the companies, but they were just like so stupid. And I was just, I I made the video, I shared it. People were like, oh, this is funny. It didn't go viral, but it was fun to make. And it, it just felt like a stupid thing to do. Like it was just out of boredom, total boredom. And also like frustration with the fact that we have a president who's just listing off names of companies and wasting our time during a pandemic. He was really under your skin. I mean, he's under a lot of people's skin, but you you reached out to me once. I remember you'd emailed me because I think you wanted some perspective or you wanted a suggestion about something. I've been struggling with the political climate. I want to stay engaged, but being exposed to anything Trump does makes me so angry. I fall completely apart. This was on January of 2017. This is probably right before he blocked you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This was, the, this was before he was even inaugurated. Yeah. So we went back and forth in a few emails just to kind of talk about the sort of, I guess, meditation perspective on all of this. It's interesting that the thing you finally became, you went viral for... <laughs> Everything I was trying to avoid. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. So what about the video that you went viral on? Do you have any idea that was a possibility or it was going to happen? Or were you thinking that that? No, I was like, I'd given up kind of like doing the like lip syncs because I think other people had started to do it. And so I was in the mode, that email, I was in that mode. Again, I told my, I told Jeff, I was like, I don't want to watch any more of these daily briefings because they're so frustrating and they make me so angry. But Jeff was, Jeff was convinced that at any moment Trump was actually going to say the N word. And so he was like watching everything he said, cause he wanted to be there when it happened. And so he was watching them pretty religiously and he saw the clip where he was talking about, you know, I think Jeff actually saw it live where he was talking about putting Lysol into your veins and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. And he was like, Sarah, you, I know you don't want to see this, but you have to see this. Like, you have to watch this. This is crazy. This is absolutely bonkers what he said. And so I listened to it. I just thought it was so funny because I, I saw in my head, I saw in my head, like taking like a, a thing, like with the spray bottle and like put it, putting it in your veins. I saw that and I was like, that's hysterical. Like, it's crazy what he's saying right now. And people are just like being quiet. Mm-hmm. Not a single person is getting like up the- and, and being like, what the hell are you talking about? No one. Right. And I, and so I was just like, I have to, I have to make something with this because it's just so ridiculous. Which is kind of like what happened with the Venn diagram. Like no one was yeah. saying anything. Right. Exactly. No one is pointing out how like completely ridiculous this is. And I had to point it out. <laughs> yeah. So what was the process? Did you have to like go on YouTube, convert the video into audio, upload that to TikTok, rehearse it a thousand times. Like what did you do to, to get it? Yeah. I mean, I, yeah, I'd been playing around with TikTok a lot at that point. So I knew how to grab the audio, put it on TikTok, use the audio with my video that I wanted to make on top of the audio. And yeah, grabbed my, <laughs> grabbed my blue blazer for some reason, not even sure why. And just started, just started making it. I had a little tripod and I just put the tripod up on like the kitchen counter and just played it over and over and over again until I got the lip syncing as close as possible. And you had multiple cuts too, which makes it way more engaging for the viewer. 
Mm-hmm. Was that yeah. something that was conscious? Because I'm sure the, maybe the first version was just you staring straight into the, the camera, right? No, because of the lip syncing, it's really hard to do a long take of lip syncing. So that's mm-hmm. why that's almost, it, it helps in that way because you have to edit because it's like, I've only memorized this much. So I'm just going to do this like six seconds and then I'm going to do another six seconds and then I'm going to do another six seconds. And so that really drove the editing like it a lot is just my inability to memorize large chunks you know mm-hmm. and so was that kind of like the old 10 things to be smarter meeting days when they went viral and you started looking at it every 10 seconds and yeah. people sh- sharing it and just going crazy and all of that yeah it was really awesome i my favorite is the you know people have been following me i had about 60,000 followers at the time and i had people who had been following me for a while from the book and all that stuff and I posted it and I think one of the people who had been following me for a while said, not bad, like literally commented, not bad. I thought it was okay. Like they were just like, whatever about it. And and then it went crazy viral. And I was like, not bad. You thought it was not bad, you know? So yeah, it just, it really took off. A few weeks later, I did another one. I, I think when 10 Tricks went viral, I tried to recreate that. It was very hard. I never did it. And so I just had the same perception with this that like, that was really good, but I'm never going to be able to do that again. So I'm probably just going to have to move on because that was a great, I went viral, great. And now I move on. But then he just kept saying like ridiculous things and I still was still having fun doing it. So I made another one a few weeks later and everyone that I made just got millions of views. And so thanks, Trump. (laughs) Did you feel pressure doing any of them or you kind of felt like you were more, you're more confident doing this than anything else at first I didn't feel any pressure it was just like me alone (laughs) making them then people started to get kind of addicted to them and then I had people writing me like you have to do this you have to do this sending me clips like you have to do this why haven't you made a video like it was like it became this prison that I'd created for myself and then you know I got an agent and they were like looking at what I was making and so it all became a lot more pressurized. It all became a lot more like, oh, I have, and then I hit a million followers. And so like, it just felt like this snowball of just like, now everybody's looking at me waiting for the next thing I'm going to do. And he just said this crazy thing, is Sarah Cooper going to do it? You know, it just turned into this phenomenon. Was there pressure to like increase the production value? Cause you kind of kept the production value. Like I'm in my living room with this blazer on and I have a little bit of eyeshadow on and, and that's pretty much it. A little bit. I mean, I think towards the end, I started to get a little bit more like creative. Like I started actually doing them without TikTok, started making them mm-hmm. on my own and, and editing them myself. And, and so, yeah, a little bit, but I think that's still the beauty of that first one that went viral is that it's so lo-fi. It's, there's, right. there's really nothing about it. And I wasn't, I didn't know what I was doing. And I think that's the beauty. It's like the, the first time I did stand up. It's like, when you don't know what you're doing, you, you just find things that if you were trying really hard, you wouldn't have found, you know, because you just were like, you know, I don't know, just that, that ignorance of, of what it is you're making just makes it somehow more special. So your agent calls you one day and says, we just got the phone with Netflix. What do you think about doing a special? Is that how it went down? No, actually my agent said, let's do a meet and greet with your fans. And so I did this kind of like a, a chat that I invited like all of my Twitter followers to just to like get to know me better. And my agent was kind of watching the comments and he was concerned that 
as much as people were saying they liked hearing me and hearing about me, it was just as much how much they hate Trump. So there is this like fear that these people weren't my fans. They were just people who hated Trump. You know what I mean? And so it's like, how do you create an audience out of people when it's all connected to this guy who has this complete jerk? I had an idea initially for a special where it was just going to be completely lip syncing Trump. It was going to be the story of Trump. And I was going to do like all of these like audio clips and all of these different locations. And they were like, no, actually, I think maybe you should do a special where you do some Trump, but then you do some other things so that you can kind of like bridge the gap between like the people that hate Trump and like you and the people that hopefully will like you even after Trump is gone. And so I was doing a lot of like, you know, general meetings with a lot of people. I did a general meeting with Maya Rudolph and Natasha Leone, which was amazing. And just sort mm-hmm. of pitched them this idea of, of doing a special. So your special, Everything is Fine, which came out in October, right? Yes. It was awesome. And it felt like an, I was watching an improv show, even though I know it was, it was scripted. But was that, yeah. the, was that the original intent? Where did it start from in, in relationship to where it ended up? Because I imagine you can go so many places, you know, like Andrew Schultz. He was doing those long form videos on Instagram and then he did a Netflix show, which was basically a series of long form videos. So I imagine that people were like, okay, do we want to see Sarah imitate Trump for 45 minutes or Mm -hmm. like, how how did you arrive at what we saw? Yeah. I mean, I think that we always knew we wanted to do like the the access Hollywood bus scene. So like, that was like, okay, we're definitely going to do that. And maybe we'll do like a few other Trump things. And then I just had like all of these ideas of, sketches that I'd want to do and and just kind of like pulled a bunch of stuff together and like this idea of the morning show host who kind of like loses her mind in COVID. And I think Natasha, she directed it and she like really drove the editing a lot. And I think that a lot of the freneticness of it is through because of the editing and because it just, it feels like a very fast paced and you're not really sure what's happening and you're kind of like losing your mind as like I'm losing my mind. And, And so like, I think that was a lot of her vision with it. I think my initial vision was something pretty close to something that I could do at home because that's just where my brain was like, oh, this will be on a green screen. This will be this. And then Natasha comes in. She's like, oh no, we're going to do a dolly shot. We're going to do this. We're going to like be on a golf course. We're going to, I'm like, oh, okay. So it's like that kind of thing. And so that's kind of the level that she took it to. Well, for a kid who, who loved playing (laughs) make-believe, <laughs> to have that opportunity. I mean, that's like that's like a dream come true, I imagine. It was whiplash every day. And it was like, oh, now I'm standing next to John Hamm. Now I'm standing next to Jane Lynch. Now I'm standing next to Winona Ryder. Now I'm standing next to Dame Helen Mirren. Like I it was it was beyond surreal. And I'm I'm in the mode now where I feel like I won the lottery and now all the money's gone. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> It was like this amazing burst of just everything you could ever possibly want. All these people yeah. you want to work with, everything you could ever possibly want to do. And now it's like, okay, so like now what, you know? But but it's also, what's ironic, it's also tied to your nemesis, the person that prompted you to reach out to your meditation teacher <laughs> to talk you off the ledge Yeah, is the reason why you have all this fame and specials and whatnot. I do want to mention one thing about that. You had a writer's room for your writer's room. You know, like when I wrote my first book for for myself, I got to write whatever I wanted to write, format however I wanted to format it. It was mine through and through from beginning to end. When I wrote my first book for my publisher, 
they had all these ideas. You know, this is how the publishing industry works. This is what sells. This yeah. is what people want to read, blah, blah, blah. So you get hit with all that. And you don't know because it's your first time working on that level. So you kind of give them a benefit of the doubt. But then later on, maybe you discover, well, actually, my instincts were kind of not off completely. They were actually kind of correct. What was your experience like doing those? Because you did skits on your own back in, 2000, in 2013 and 14, which were pretty good. And now you're working with the big boys and you have your own instincts. What was your experience with, with that when they're trying to ram these ideas down your, your throat? It was, I mean, it was really difficult because I think, and I, a lot of it was my just inexperience in terms of like knowing what my taste is and knowing what tone I wanted to hit and just not having any experience on a set like that where like I'm... <laughs> Natasha calls it number one on the call sheet, which means like, if I'm not there, it doesn't happen. And there's 60 people, they're all wearing badges. The badges all say Sarah Cooper, you know, and it's just like, it's, it's all on you. And so like, I had a writer's room and I had a good idea of what I wanted to do, but then things weren't really working. You know, when you write for yourself, it's like, it should feel very natural. And, and I was, I was reading things that just were like, oh no, that's not exactly that's not exactly my taste. That's not exactly what I, what I like. That's not exactly what makes me laugh. And so after a first three week, three weeks of that, then there was like another writer's room with Natasha, like really like, was like, well, let's get some new writers in and let's do another like session and, and like really hone in on like what the tone is that you really like. And which is, we have a similar sense of humor. So she got it. She totally got it. But I think I drove a lot of people crazy is basically what I'm saying. But when I got on set, I think there was a lot of that of just, there's so much technology. When you get on set, there's all these cameras, there's all of this, all of this crew, lighting, sound, all of this stuff going on. And so you really do feel like, let them do what they know how to do, because I, I really don't know what's going on. So I just learned a ton. I just learned so much about how a director works with the cinematographer and how like a lot of these scenes, like the scene with Ben Stiller, like he shot that separately. And then I shot my part and then I had an earpiece and the earpiece wasn't working. And so there's a lot of that sort of thing that had to be worked out. And so I just learned so much. I learned so much about myself and I, you know, I will say, you know, the one thing to your point is that I do think something was lost with the bigness of the production, because I think there is something very charming about not a lot of costumes, not a lot of set, not a lot of anything. And so if I could go back, I probably would have scaled it back a little bit. I would have been like, no, actually, my taste is very simple. It's, it's, it's not a lot of things going on. But at the same time, I just, it was just awesome to be able to like, come up with a Karen on set who, who like just totally matched trying to get into my apartment in San Francisco and a woman being like, do you live here? And like being a, a morning show host and being like, do you work here? You know, like, do you belong here? And always feeling like there was always someone like, do you belong here? And being able to bring that to life within weeks, like having the idea, then bringing it to life and putting it out. It was just really awesome. It was just an awesome experience. And now you're kind of known for, I guess, because you were imitating Trump and you did sketches about Karen's. Now you're known as like this kind of woke person, right? <laughs> Plus you're pretty prolific on Twitter about your opinions about all those things, but you're turning your books now into television shows. You're going to go back and bring some of that into your office stuff. Yeah. I mean, how to be successful without hurting men's feelings. The title is pretty, <laughs> <laughs> it like kind of says it all. 
And it's so fascinating because like I have a Facebook group that's just a private group where mm-hmm. I just like share ideas and my friends and family, like 50 very close friends and family, like just give me feedback. And I remember coming up with like how to be successful without hurting men's feelings. And everyone's like, oh my God, that's great. And then to have it be a book and now to have it be like hopefully a television show is amazing. But I think the thing that's really cool about it is being able to create characters and then have characters have different perspectives. Because that's how I've always felt. Like I felt like I could always like see another side. I could see a point of view. I could see where people are coming from. And then being able to tell a story where like, yeah, I experienced this microaggression. Somebody said, oh, we need you to do this because we need diversity. And a person being like, that's that's okay. I guess that's fine. And then having someone else being like, no, that's actually really offensive. You're not here for diversity. You're here because you're smart. And having someone else be like, well, yeah, but you don't want this to define you. Like Having all of those different perspectives is just really exciting because I think that's what has been missing sort of for me is like being able to say like, there's no one right way to deal with racism or microaggressions or sexism. We all experience it and we all deal with it in different ways. And let's just talk about it and let's just share how we deal with it and share maybe how we can deal with it better next time. Let's just be more aware of it. And so that's, that's what's really exciting for me about like bringing that to life, like with characters and stories. I love that. Last couple of questions for you. You're in your forties now. You've had your experience of fame, which is what you dreamt about as a child. (laughs) (laughs) How are you thinking about success these days? You caught me at a, a weird point where my mom is like, you were fine before the fame. You'll be fine after. You know, my sister's like, you're always going to be able to do something else. It'll be great. But there's this part of me that's just like, oh my God, what if that was it? You know? Mm -hmm. And so I feel like right now success is (laughs) proving that that wasn't it. Success for me right now is, is showing that there is a lot more that I can do. And there's a lot more that I can say, and there's a lot more that I can make and share. And so I always put pressure on myself, but right now there's like this extra pressure of just like, I always feel like I have something to prove, but now I really feel like I have something to prove. I really have to, I feel like I have to prove that I'm more than my Trump impression. Now that Trump is gone, what what happens with your TikToks? It was like a season of a show and the show's been canceled. (laughs) That's how I look at it. (laughs) All right. And then last question, if you were going to give your 19 year old self any life advice, what would you tell young Sarah? I would say, <laughs> stop focusing so much on trying to meet a man. I, I spent way too much tra- time trying to meet a man. I, I spent, I wasted so much time on dating sites. I wasted so much time. I mean, I guess it eventually all worked out, but um, I really wish I had focused a lot more on like figuring out who I am versus like figuring out how I can get into a relationship. Love that. Well, Sarah, it was, a, it was a pleasure getting deeper into your story and, and understanding, especially the part with my brother. I had no idea <laughs> that he played such a I can't believe that too. It's so funny because I remember t- messaging him that I was going to be taking your meditation. And he said to me, don't feel like you need to tell him you know me or anything like that. Like he, he literally said that. And I was like, oh, okay. So I'll just, because I think he wanted us to have our own relationship outside of him, which I thought was like actually very sweet of him to say that. And he's been so supportive. He bought my books for his coworkers and stuff. He's, he's really awesome. Yeah. Yeah. He is an awesome guy. But anyway, I want to acknowledge you for just 
you know, I think one of the things that I've noticed in your story is you just kept showing up. You just kept showing up over and over again and again and again, staying innovative, staying creative, taking the blows. I don't know if you've read Stephen Pressfield's book, The War of Art. Have you read that yes. book? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And he talks a lot about his rejection stories and the negative reviews. And yeah, it's just, some of them are laugh out loud funny. He's actually coming onto the podcast soon. So I'm really excited about that. But yeah, your story kind of reminds me a lot about the resilience you need to have to resistance because it's there and it's, I think it's, it's a filtering or screen of sorts to kind of tease out the, the essence of what's truly there. And I think that's what, what you've done and, and we celebrate you for that. Thank you very much for sharing your story so openly and honestly. Thank you so much, Light. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Sarah Cooper. I highly recommend following Sarah on Twitter at Sarah Cooper and make sure to check out her Netflix show, Everything's Fine, as well as her book, How to Be Successful Without Hurting Men's Feelings. She's got a few other books as well and a coloring book. And if you feel inspired by Sarah's story, I'd really appreciate if you could take 10 seconds to rate the podcast. Just look down at your screen, click where it says at the end of the tunnel in purple. If you don't see it, it's probably because you're listening to this on another platform. And if that's the case, just look for a button that says listen on Apple Podcasts. And then once you get to the Apple Podcasts, scroll down, get to where it says ratings and reviews and just tap on the star all the way on the far right and you left a review. Thank you very much for that in advance. I really appreciate it. And you can also get a transcript and the show notes on my website, lightwatkins.com slash tunnel. While you're there, sign up for my daily dose of inspiration email, which is a short and sweet daily motivational message that I've been sending out every morning for almost five years now. It's even been turned into a book called Knowing Where to Look, which I'm super excited about. It's going to come out in May of 2021. Thanks again for listening to this podcast and for sharing it with your friends and your followers. And I'll see you back here next week with another amazing story from the end of the tunnel. And in the meantime, keep trusting your intuition, keep following your heart, peace and love. you want to get a little extra nudge when it comes to following your heart and taking leaps of faith and believing in yourself each day, then you want to sign up for my free daily dose of inspiration email. You'll join 30,000 other subscribers who receive a short inspirational story or anecdote that's meant to inspire you to become the best version of yourself each day. You can sign up at lightwatkins.com and you'll get your first inspirational message as early as tomorrow. Again, Just go to lightwatkins.com. You can sign up for free and you'll wake up each morning inspired to be the best version of yourself.